We're going to be in Mark chapter 8 this morning as we continue our study of Mark, picking back up, uh, starting in verse 22. We're going to be looking at 22 through 30. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Why do peop- who, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Good morning. Glad to be getting to do this. So Jared needed a break. So uh, here I am on our first jump back into Mark. That's a lucky one for me. So um, sorry, Jared. I hope I can do it as well as you hope I can do it. <laughs> uh, all right, before we get back into Mark, though, um, we have some things to, to glance back on because we were out of Mark for the summer doing the Psalms, and so I think it's really helpful. It would be helpful for us to review a little bit, just kind of recap where we've been in the Gospel of Mark so far. So you can jump all the way back to chapter 1, and we're going to go through it pretty quick. Hopefully it won't take us too long, uh, just kind of glancing through some of the, the high points, okay? Uh, remember, Mark's gospel is really fast-paced. It's full of action. It's just a lot of go, 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 go. Mark doesn't dwell very long on anything. He doesn't give us a whole lot of the teaching of Jesus. He's mostly concerned with action. Uh, his favorite word is immediately, right? He says it everywhere. It's always immediately, immediately, immediately. But the gospel of Mark starts off... Um, unlike in Matthew, where you have a genealogy, unlike in Luke, where you have the birth of Jesus, Mark starts right. And if you remember, John the Baptist is this one who, and he's proclaiming this whole idea of baptism, of repentance for forgiveness of sins. But he is also prophesying. He's a prophet at the same time. And he's saying, there's somebody who's coming after me who's more powerful than me, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. I baptize with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus enters the picture. And this is early on in the Gospel of Mark. And the first thing we see Jesus do is he goes into the water with John. And in the Jordan River, John baptizes Jesus. And this is kind of marking the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And then Jesus is spurned by the Holy Spirit to go into the wilderness. And he's tempted for 40 days. But then John is arrested. Jesus comes back into Galilee and begins his ministry in earnest actually in verse 14. So this is where we see him come in and actually start doing ministry. So right there in chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
right? That's the beginning. This is, this is Jesus summarizing. This is what I'm here to do. This is why I came. Then in verse 16, he calls disciples. In verse 21, he casts out demons. In verse 29, he heals the sick. And then in, uh, at the end of the chapter, we see him again preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Right, really quick, like lots of stuff happening all right there in the first chapter. And you see, as we kind of move through, Jesus' teaching, his miracles, it draws big crowds, right? Lots of people are coming to hear, coming to be healed. But he also, at the same time, is encountering a lot of opposition, specifically from the religious leaders. And we know these guys as the scribes and the Pharisees. You'll see those terms used a lot here in Mark. And these conflicts, at first, kind of center around, uh, one, fellowshipping with tax collectors and sinners. You can remember Jesus called Levi, who was a tax collector, and then he goes back to Levi's house, and they're having this big feast, and all these bad, yucky sinner people are there, and the Pharisees are like, why is he eating with these sinners? Um, but also, some of the other issues were the issue of fasting. The disciples weren't fasting like people thought they should. Uh, Sabbath regulations, right? The Pharisees thought that Jesus was breaking these Sabbath rules. But while these start off kind of like little squabbles about doctrine or whatever, by the time you get to chapter 3, verse 22, the religious leaders in that case are saying, he's possessed by a demon, right? So it's like it's quick, kind of escalating quickly. Um, he didn't waste a lot of time to get to the point where it's like he's in his <laughs> teaching. Um, and like I said, Mark doesn't do a lot of teaching, but this is one, one big section of teaching. And we see Jesus teaching a specific way. He uses parables. And remember, parables aren't what you think they are. We, at first we go, oh, a parable, it helps me understand. It's like, a, it's like a, a picture, an object lesson to help me understand a deep spiritual truth. That's not the purpose of parables as far as Jesus is concerned. The, the reason Jesus speaks in parables is actually to conceal the truth. Right? He's hiding it from those who don't have spiritual eyes, who can't discern spiritual things. A few of his parables. We saw the picture of the soils, right? So you have different kinds of soil representing different types of, of that word. Um, we see, uh, you see this whole uh, parable about seeds, and uh, you throw seeds out. You don't really know exactly the process, how they grow or whatever, but you know, like, okay, there's something growing now. Uh, and then there's the mustard seed, right? So Jesus says, uh, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's really, really small, right? But you plant it, and it becomes the largest um, tree in the garden. Through that, Jesus is demonstrating that not everybody who hears his words is going to understand him. But only those, as he says, to whom has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. So what the teaching does in chapter 4 is it starts to really draw a line between people who are inside and people who are outside. Right? There's the people who are, have the ears to hear and there are the people who do not. Then you see miraculous works of Jesus increasing, continuing on. You see in chapter 4, verse 35, he's in a boat, there's a storm, and he calms the storm with his words. You see him cast out a legion of demons, 500 demons all at once out of this man in chapter 5. You see him raise a girl from the dead in 535. And all those miracles, you, get, you have witnesses in every single case. People are, are marveling, like, and the people marveled, and the people were astonished. And specifically, you see the disciples, after that storm on the Sea of Galilee is calmed by his words, they say, who is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? 
And then in chapter 6, Jesus kind of gives his disciples a little test run, sends them out on a little ministry practice uh, to do some healing, some preaching. Uh, and they come back and they're like, hey, we did some great job. We did a great job. We were awesome. Thanks for the help. Uh, and he's like, okay, good. And that gives me confidence that maybe you guys won't be total failures. Um, and then we also hear in chapter 6 what happened to John the Baptist, right? We learn that Herod Antipas had him killed. Um, and now it's kind of wondering, like, could this Jesus guy be the reincarnation of John? Jesus continues to perform miracles, confront religious leaders, but all throughout this, one thing that you've noticed probably, and one thing we have to keep track of, is that the disciples to feed 5,000 people, and yet a few verses later, there's 4,000 people, and they're like, how are we going to feed these guys? So finally, in chapter 8, verse 21, we see Jesus ask his disciples this question that at this point all of us are kind of thinking, right? What does he say? Do you not yet understand? And that question sets the stage for what we're looking at this week. We're going to witness the blind receive sight, both literally and spiritually. But before we get into Mark today, let's, let's pray together. Father God, we recognize that we can often be so blind to you, so blind to how you're working in our lives, so blind to the needs of others around us. So I pray this morning, Father, that you will open our eyes to see you, open our eyes to see your word clearly, open our eyes that we might know those around us who are hurting, who need to know you, open our eyes to the glories the magnificent glories that you have in store for us. All right, so this week, we have two scenes. Lanny just read about them. So you heard them. Two moments in the Gospel of Mark that I think Mark has carefully placed together. I don't think it's an accident that they're side by side. Um, I think you'll see in just a moment how, connect, how connected these are. Okay? The first scene is this healing of a blind man. The second is Jesus walking with his disciples, and he asks him a couple of questions, and we get to this kind of pinnacle of the Gospel of Mark, right? Well, of the first half of the Gospel of Mark. Obviously, the pinnacle's coming a little later if you know the story. Um, but we get this kind of like peak of this part where Peter finally proclaims, you'll see, is the Christ. And through considering these two moments, through putting them together, here's what I hope you'll, you'll see, okay? Here's, here's what we're, we're looking at this morning. Spiritual sight. Spiritual sight can only be granted through the touch of Jesus. And gaining spiritual vision is a gradual process. It's not something that happens immediately. So let's look at verse 22. Can you put it back up there again, Wes? Is that possible? Verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. All right, so Jesus and his disciples come to Bethsaida. This is a town at the north of the Sea of Galilee. So if you can picture in your, in your head a little map, here's the Sea of Galilee. Bethsaida's up here, kind of northeast. Um, one thing to know about this town is that Jesus didn't speak very kindly about it. Um, in Luke chapter 10, uh, which chronologically, if you're kind of looking at it, 
probably comes after this scene, right? Um, here's what he says in Luke 10. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. Okay, so while we are about to see one of these uh, miraculous works done here in Bethsaida, apparently the bulk of the people won't repent and believe still. But at this point in time, the people who are here have at least heard something about Jesus' power because as soon as he enters the town, they come rushing, right? We've seen this before. People come rushing. Jesus' reputation precedes him. And as soon as he enters a place, everybody's coming. The sick, the lame, the demon-possessed, everybody's coming to get fixed by Jesus. In this case, we have the paralytic back in chapter 2. His friends brought him on a mat, and they lowered him down, cut a hole in the ceiling, lowered him down to bring him to Jesus. You probably also remember Jairus. Uh, he came on behalf of his daughter who was very ill and said, Please come, heal my daughter. You remember the deaf and mute man, right? Back in uh, just chapter 7, I think, where the friends bring this deaf man to Jesus and say, Hey, we need you to help him. And there's something, I think, really beautiful about that, about that pattern that we see, Right? Because we see kind of a community of faith. It shows us that there's an importance of a community of faith. There's an importance in intercession, like coming before God on behalf of others. So if you think about it, in your life, we all have people around us who need to be like put in front of Jesus, right? Maybe it's a need that they have, like a physical need that's happening that they need to, we should put them in front of Jesus in prayer, Right? We should be praying for that need. Or maybe um, it's somebody who doesn't know who Jesus is, and we should be seeking to put them in front of Jesus, or I guess put Jesus in front of them uh, in the things that we say, the things that we do. Because for some reason, God, in all his sovereign might and power, he could have easily just said, save, 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 got you, got you, got you. But for some reason, healed, healed, healed. For some reason, he decided that, he wanted to let us be channels for that. Um, he, he wants us to be part of accomplishing his will through our prayer, through our actions in obedience to him. That's a, that's a really cool thing we get to do. So anyway, in this moment, the blind man, he literally couldn't find Jesus on his own. He's got his friends who are bringing him to Jesus because they care enough about him to seek help. And they touch this man, touch our friend, touch the blind man. And Jesus takes him by the hand, he touches him, and leads him to a secluded area outside the city. We've seen that before too. Go all the way back to chapter 1, this whole idea of touching. is begging to be cleansed. And Jesus reaches out and touches him. Well, we don't have leprosy anymore really, but leprosy is an incredibly contagious disease, okay? If you touch a leper... You're going to get leprosy. But the touch of Jesus is so powerful that when he reaches out and touches this leper, rather than Jesus becoming contaminated, the man becomes clean. So Jesus' purity is more contagious than man's impurity is. And here we see again the touch of Jesus is going to bring renewal and healing. We saw it in chapter 7 as well, the deaf and mute man. Jesus takes him aside, and how does he heal him? He sticks his fingers in his ears and touches his tongue. The touch of Jesus 
is the healing. You saw it with the woman with the issue of blood. What did she say? If I could only touch the hem of his garment, right? She didn't even have to be touched by him. She just needed to touch something touching him, and that was enough. Of course, Jesus doesn't have to touch someone. We've seen him use just his word multiple times, where just his word alone can bring healing. But in these cases, the touch of Jesus is that powerful means by which healing happens. So Jesus takes this man by the hand and leads him kind of away from the village. And that's, there's a practical reason for that, right? Jesus could have said, all right, come follow me. But blind people kind of struggle with that a little bit, right? Kind of hard for a blind person to follow you. So Jesus, knowing that this guy can't see, takes him by the hand and leads him somewhere. I'm emphasizing words there because I think you're already kind of starting to see the spiritual connections here, maybe, maybe. Now, why did he go outside the village? We don't know exactly. It doesn't tell us. There are a few possibilities. Um, obviously, Bethsaida is not known for its reception of Jesus, um, so maybe he's trying to avoid uh, a bunch of issues there in that town. We know multiple times Jesus says, it's not my time yet, so I need to be careful how much I reveal of myself. Um, maybe it was just because he wanted to have a more personal experience, um, help them. Once they get outside the village, what happens? Jesus takes the man and he spits on his eyes. Ugh. Well, y'all, in our, we don't like spit, do we? <laughs> he spits on his eyes, lays his hands on him. I know, we're uncomfortable. But this spitting thing, we saw it also with that deaf man and mute man, right? Jesus spit on his hand and touched his tongue. Um, so, there's evidence that this was kind of a common practice uh, at this time in this area where, you know, using spit or something like that would be a, a means to bring healing. Uh, so maybe Jesus was doing that just to kind of be a signal to this man that that's what's going on. Don't know exactly, but um, Jesus also lays his hands on him. And this does have, we do know what this is about a little bit. Laying on of hands has a very particular connotation in Scripture. If you look back in the Old Testament, there's two main things that laying ice to dedicate them to God, right, to cover sin. The second was when priests would take the Levites, new Levites who were being inducted into the priesthood, and they would lay their hands on them to dedicate them to the Lord in service in the priesthood. Okay? Listen to what, this is how um, Edwards says this. He says, the two primary purposes of laying on of hands in the Old Covenant were to transfer either animals or persons from the profane, that just means the ordinary, the regular, to transfer persons from the profane to the sacred by consecrating them to God, by making them holy for God. When Jesus lays his hands on people, the effect is rather the opposite. For the profane, the ordinary, is no longer elevated to the sacred as in the Old Testament, but rather by bestowing God's holy, healing presence on, to the profane and even sinful people, Jesus brings the sacred to the profane. And this is the picture that we see in all of what Jesus is doing. Right? He comes and says, used to be, you had to get good enough to get here. Now, I'm bringing the good enough to you and making you good. So Jesus lays his hands on this man, extending divine and sacred power to a blind sinner. Okay, do I really have to preach this? Or are you all hearing it yet? You got it? 
And Jesus, but here, this is crazy, because what does Jesus do? He asks him a question. He says, do you see anything? What? <laughs> this, so far, this healing has been really familiar. Like, okay, this sounds a lot like many of the other healings we've seen in Mark. But at this point, something different happens. In all the other healings we've seen, Jesus never asks anybody if it's working. The only time he's asked a question so far was when that woman touched his garment. He's like, who touched me? Every other time, there's not a question. It's not like, am I doing a good job? Are you fixed yet? No, they're just healed and it just happens. But in this case, Jesus asked this guy, is it working? Do you see anything? And how does he respond? Well, let me say this. If we had been reading the Gospel of Mark straight through, this question do you see anything, would have felt really familiar. Look back up in verse 17. It's probably on the same page. Go ahead and look with me. Verse 17, Jesus says to him, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened here? Do you not remember to see, right? He's used. So why does Jesus choose to heal this man this way? Well, I think we're starting to see, right? He's using this healing as a teaching tool. For his disciples who are there, who can't see very clearly yet, and for us 2,000, or 2000 years later. And how does the man respond? He looks up um, and he says, well, I can see some people walking over there, but they look like trees. So in other words, it's still blurry. He can't see very well yet. So Jesus lays his hands on him again, and this time the man's sight is completely restored. He can see perfectly. And Jesus commands him, as we've seen many times before, go straight back home, don't go in the village telling everybody what happened, just go home. So here's the question that we kind of have to answer. Why is it that this healing took so much extra time? Why didn't it happen instantaneously? It was quick, it was only a few minutes, but it wasn't immediate like Mark probably wanted it to be. It wasn't immediate like the leper. It wasn't immediate like the paralytic. It wasn't immediate like that man with the withered hand. It wasn't immediate like the woman with the issue of blood. It dried up immediately. It wasn't immediately like the deaf man. No, this time Jesus reaches out, touches a man to heal him. And it doesn't work all the way. The man says, I can see better than I did before, but it, it isn't clear yet. It wasn't immediately clear. But Jesus doesn't leave him with half sight. He touches him again and brings full vision. It's no accident that Jesus did this healing this way. It's no accident that Mark put this healing right where he put it in his gospel. Because look where he goes next. Next section of chapter 8, you're going to see that this gradual revelation thing, this Becoming able to see is something way bigger than just this one man receiving his sight, which would have been huge for him, but it's way bigger for us. So look at verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, other one of the prophets, and he asked him, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. A new place. This is about a day. Charge them to tell no one about him. 
All right, so Caesarea Philippi, going to a new place. This is about a day's journey away from Bethsaida. So Jesus is walking there with his disciples, and on the way, as he commonly does, he's talking to them. He's asking them questions and teaching them. The first question he asks is, who do people say that I am? And they respond with the common theories, right? Well, John the Baptist. We already know from chapter 6, Herod held to this theory that Jesus was just John the Baptist reincarnated. Apparently others did as well. Uh, they said maybe Elijah. Um, and this was a kind of a, a common thing, a common idea of the day. Uh, because since Elijah was taken up by God, he didn't die a natural death. Um, many believed that he would kind of return as a forerunner for the day of the Lord, right? That he's going to kind of come back um, as a precursor to the final days. Uh, that many of the prophets had been talking about. Um, others said that he's a prophet. Um, back in Deuteronomy 18, Moses had foretold, uh, God will raise up a prophet for you like me from among your brothers. And ever since then, Israel has been waiting for this final prophet who's going to come and give the final word of God to his people. Right? What's the, what's the last thing you need to say, Lord? And all of those theories, especially those last two if you think about it, show that people had a high opinion of Jesus, right? They didn't think lowly of him necessarily. The, we, saw the, we see the religious leaders, they think he's possessed, but most people seem to at least think highly of him. Uh, those aren't bad comparisons. Anybody would be happy to compare to Elijah, right? A great prophet to um, Moses. Those are great, great comparisons. And these things aren't entirely without merit. Because if you think about it, Jesus is like, he is a lot like John the Baptist, he comes, he's proclaiming the need for repentance. He's pronouncing the kingdom coming. He's going to eventually be baptizing with the Holy Spirit, right? There's comparisons there. Uh, Jesus is like Elijah. He's a prophet of God proclaiming blessings and judgment, announcing the coming day of the Lord. He is like Moses, like other prophets, bringing the word of God to the people. Those things. Limiting Jesus to any of those little things denies his unique and, and his ultimate authority, which has already been demonstrated here in Mark. So the disciples toss out these common theories, and it's really clever how Jesus approached this, because notice, like, he doesn't immediately get to the question he really wants the answer to. He starts by asking them what other people think, and that gives them this opportunity to speak freely. Nobody's committing to anything at this point, right? You're just like, well, some people say that, some people say that. Ah, who knows? Those all sound kind of weird to me. But then Jesus asked them the question he really wants the answer to. And you can kind of picture this, right? They're walking along, tossing out ideas. Oh, yeah, John the Baptist, I've heard that one. Oh, yeah, what, Elijah? That's crazy. He's not Elijah. Whatever. And then Jesus says, okay, so what do you think? Who do you say that I am? And I, in my head, I picture they all get, like, real quiet. Maybe they're, like, walking and they all kind of stop. Like, oh, golly. Uh, and they're going through the possibilities in their head, right? Like, well, I met John, saw John. He's not John. That didn't make any sense. John said himself that another more powerful was coming. He's more powerful than John. Okay, so he's not John. He's not Elijah. That didn't make any sense. Why? He didn't say he's Elijah. I don't know. He's not just a prophet because he's... I, he, I mean, I watched him heal people. I watched him cast out hundreds of demons all at one time. I've seen him bring dead people back to life. I've seen him calm a storm with his voice, walk on water. I've seen him feed thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread. He's got to be more than all that stuff. Goodness gracious, he has to be more. But Peter has the guts. Peter has the guts to speak up, and he says, 
You are the Christ. You are the Christ. All right, let's take a minute and talk about that word. This word means a lot. The word Christ is just the Greekification. That's not a good word. The Greek, <laughs> the Greek version of the word Messiah, right? You've heard that word Messiah, I'm sure. Messiah, Christ, it means Messiah, okay? We use it all the time when we talk about the prophecies of Jesus from the Old Testament, right? We say, look at all these prophecies about the Messiah, and we say those are fulfilled in Jesus. But here's the thing that will probably make you uncomfortable, made me uncomfortable, and it's going to surprise you. Go into the Old Testament, look through it, and look in your English version of the Bible for the word Messiah, and you won't find it. That word, that term Messiah is not ever used. But the idea is there. This idea of an anointed one is there. And by the time we get to Jesus, if we look at some of the, the stuff that's going on, some of the more recent literature, there's, there is evidence that, that teachers at this time were using that term Messiah to anticipate this coming ruler. But what does it mean, Messiah? Let's think, if it means anointed one, who gets anointed? Right? Just think through. In the Old Testament, who gets anointed? Well, prophets get anointed by God to speak his word. Priests get anointed to intercede on behalf of the people before God. And kings get anointed to serve as the leaders and rulers over their people. And throughout the history of Israel, they mostly focused on the Messiah idea as, as a king, right? The king was the Messiah. They would look at David's promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where this son of David was coming to sit on the throne forever, right? They would look at the promises from Isaiah chapter 9, which we read at Christmas time sometimes, right? Where it's like the government would be upon his shoulders and his reign would have no end. He would sit on the throne of David and uphold his kingdom with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That king... That's the Messiah. This was the concept of the Messiah, the anointed king of Israel. Who is the Messiah, he is, he is calling Jesus the king, the promised king, the son of David who has come to establish an everlasting kingdom. But that proclamation is more than just that. And it's more than we kind of realize at first because we, in our world, we kind of think of Christ as Jesus' last name. Right? We'll say Jesus Christ, son of Mary and Joseph Christ. That's not what it is at all. By proclaiming Jesus to be the anointed one, Peter is proclaiming that he's a promised king, but he's also pointing to the other anointed roles that Jesus is going to fill, of prophet and priest. Because there used to be multiple anointed ones. Right? There were prophets over here who were anointed by God. There were priests over here who were anointed by God. There were kings after king after king after king who were anointed to do a job. But now there's not anointed ones anymore. There's an anointed one. Peter's saying, you're the fulfillment of the prophecies of old. The king who is coming to rescue Israel. To establish a perfect and everlasting kingdom. And as we look back on this confession that Jesus is the Christ, we see that he's proclaiming Jesus to be the promised king, the promised prophet, and the promised priest. And then Jesus, <laughs> he says, yeah, you're right. That is who I am. But it's our secret. Don't tell anybody for now. So how are these two scenes so intricately connected? I say they're, they're woven together, right? 
Well, I hope you've already seen it. See what I did there? Seen it? Uh, but let's consider. First, think about the mindset of the disciples up till now, okay? Just think about where they've been thinking. But by the time we get to 8, 14 through 21, the disciples are in this boat with Jesus. They've just finished watching him feed the 4,000. And that, that's crazy enough, right? Because as we already talked about, they watched him feed the 5,000 with a few loaves and a few fishes. And then a few verses later, they get to this crowd of four. He does it again. He takes a few loaves and a few fishes and across the seeds all these people. And then they get in this boat and they're sailing across the sea, and Jesus starts talking to them. He warns them. He says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware the leaven of Herod. And the disciples go, leaven? Oh, no, we didn't bring any bread on the boat. Guys, what if we get hungry on the boat? Oh, no, what about? And Jesus is like, what are you talking about? What? When we were there with the 5,000, how many loaves did you have? And they are like, five. And how many baskets of leftovers did you pick up? Twelve. When we were with the 4,000, how many loaves did you have? Seven. And how many baskets did we pick up? Seven. And what does Jesus say? He says, do you not yet understand? These guys have been right in front of Jesus the whole time. He's continually put himself right in front of them. They've been following Jesus for all this time, but he's just been leading them by the hand like the blind man because they couldn't see who he really was. But now, Jesus is opening their eyes and they're beginning to see. So these stories are side by side because when Jesus heals a blind man and the blind man says, yeah, I can see, but it's still a little blurry, that's what happens to Peter. When it comes to seeing Jesus, it, it doesn't happen immediately. Jesus reveals himself gradually. It's like this. The light of the gospel is really bright. The light and glory of who Jesus is shines really, really bright. And if your eyes are just opened, it takes a minute to take it all in. But when Peter says, you are the Christ, he's beginning to see. He had been blind. He didn't understand it all before. But now Jesus is opening his eyes. But, as we're going to see next week, his vision isn't perfect yet. Because down in verse 31, Jesus is telling him, Yeah, I'm the Messiah. I am the Christ. I'm the promised king that's come. But I'm going to have to go. What are you talking about? He rebukes Jesus. And Jesus then rebukes him back and says, You're setting your mind not on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter can see Jesus now, but his vision is still blurry. He can't see it clearly. He can't see what all is necessary for Jesus to truly be that anointed king, priest, and prophet. But there's hope. Because remember, Jesus didn't leave that blind man with partial sight. He doesn't leave Peter with partial sight. By the time we get to Acts chapter 2, right, and the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, and Peter is preaching the gospel with clarity and conviction. He sees it clearly. But the ultimate point here, we all have to answer this question. The question that Jesus asked these disciples, everybody has to answer it. He says, who do you say that I am? And everything rests on your answer. So maybe you are like the blind man. You can't see Jesus at all. 
you would say, like, I don't have any clue who Jesus is. Well, I hope that we've put Jesus in front of you today. I hope that you can see that he is the Son of God who came to die for the sins of those who would trust in him. I hope you'll open your eyes so you can see clearly your sin, his majesty, run away from your sin and to him and trust him. Or maybe when you hear that question, you're like the people that the disciples brought up, the theories, right? You say, well, Jesus is a great prophet, really good teacher, a wise man, a possible way to get to God. Well, if you're in that group, I hope and pray that you will confess with Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the only way. The way through whom God spoke to God as our priest. The anointed one who is the... Maybe you're more like Peter at the end of the passage. And you say, the end of this passage today, you say, yes, Jesus is the Christ. I believe. But I'm not really sure exactly what all that means. I don't, I don't really know the depths of it. I, it's still kind of blurry. Well, let me tell you, you have some advantages that Peter didn't have at this point. Right? If you believe, if you're trusting in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit to guide, direct, and teach you. And you have the Word of God that has all of this stuff clearly set before you. So go, read, learn, know more of Him. You have these advantages to, to help your sight become more clear. Or maybe you can see clearly. Maybe... When Jesus says, who do you say that I am? You answer emphatically. I say you are Christ Jesus, the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world, the Lord of my life. Maybe you say, you are my shepherd, my friend, my king. If you're there, praise the Lord for his gift of sight. But let me remind you this awesome thing. Spiritual sight is gradually given. And though you may see clearly now, there's even more to be seen. More glory than any eye has seen or ears heard. As clear as our sight is now, it's still blurry compared to what awaits in glory for us. So I pray that you'll await that fullness with joy and eagerness and recognize the responsibility that we who see who Jesus is, the responsibility we have to proclaim him to others who are blind, help them see Jesus for who he is, too. Let's pray. Lord, you are so, <laughs> you're so kind to us to give people like us, blind sinners, that you would come and touch us with your Holy Spirit. We confess that we are, we are still so often blurry-eyed, or maybe we just sometimes close our eyes and just pretend like we're blind so that we have some excuse in our own minds. Lord, I pray that you will help us see you clearly. And I pray that you will help us to be the vessels and the channels that you've ordained to help others see clearly. May we be bold in our proclamation of the kingdom of Jesus May we set our eyes on you. May you be our vision. May we turn our eyes to Jesus, look full in his wonderful face so that the things of earth will grow 
dimmer and dimmer and dimmer in the light of his glory and grace. In his name we pray, amen.